My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. So, so important that we do all of this outside of the state, remembering that, you know, cops are still showing up in schools and policing is still happening in schools. And so we have to arm youth and their parents with like knowledge and skills on like how to protect each other, because at the end of the day, we keep each other safe. And we're all we have in this white supremacist settler colonial hellscape that we're all living in, unfortunately. That's the voice of Haley Yasmin Dash. She and Mae Mason are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. The racial justice uprising of 2020 brought new attention and energy to the centuries-old struggles against white supremacy, particularly anti-black racism, and police violence. Catalyzed by the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, it brought people to the streets across the U.S. and Canada and around the world. It pushed significant elements of mainstream opinion to support defunding the police, and introduced a new layer of activists and organizers to the broader goal of police and prison abolition. It was this context in which Dash and two of her friends founded the Asilu Collective in Ottawa. The three of them were relatively recent graduates of Maryvale High School. Like many other school boards in Ontario, theirs had a program that placed so-called school resource officers, or SROs, that is, police, in schools. The SRO programs were created in response to provincial legislation passed in the early 2000s that was ostensibly about school safety. That justification depends, however, on an understanding of safety and of how schools work as institutions that erases the experiences of racialized students, particularly those who are black and indigenous, and of students who are marginalized in other ways. Both research from across North America and an endless litany of personal accounts have shown that the presence of police makes schools less safe for many of those students. Black and other racialized communities have been challenging the presence of police in schools for a long, long time, and the 2020 uprising felt to Dash and her friends like an important moment to join in that work. It was a long and challenging campaign, marked by acrimonious debate and lots of public racism, but by the summer of 2021, the SRO program was gone from Ottawa schools. This was an important victory, and one well worth celebrating. But the Asilu Collective knew it was only a start. In conversation with other groups doing similar work across so-called Canada, the Collective had been moving their focus from police-free schools to policing-free schools. The kinds of surveillance, regulation, and harm done by police to black, indigenous, and other racialized people is not only done by the police, but in lots of other ways, too. In school contexts, that means a few different things. Some of the policing functions that had been done by SRO officers were taken up by administrators and teachers. Other practices through which marginalized students are policed in schools had never been done by the cops, and those just continued and the administration could still call the police in under some circumstances, and in their work supporting families, Asilu saw instances where administrators exaggerated or escalated circumstances to allow them to do so. 
And, in some key respects, provincial legislation continues to tie the operation of schools to formal policing, even without an SRO program. With all of that in mind, after the win in 2021, the Asilu Collective decided to focus more on direct advocacy work in support of students and families facing specific injustices related to policing in Ottawa schools. They also did mutual aid work, community crowdfunding, set up a reporting tool to allow students to share their experiences anonymously, and ran a book club as a political education measure. More recently, while they're still keen to support students and families, they've pivoted away from a focus on advocacy directed at schools towards building networks and resilience throughout the community, both to directly support people in ways that don't depend on the state, and to build the kinds of relationships and capacities that will be needed in the future for more profound challenges to the status quo. I speak with Dash and Mason about the work of the Asilu Collective. My name is Haley Yasmin Dash. I'm a co-founder of Asilu Collective. I am a South Asian settler living right now on unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories, but I grew up in so-called Ottawa on Algonquin territories. I founded Asilu Collective in 2020 with two other folks that I knew from my high school. We are a grassroots abolitionist collective fighting and organizing for police-free schools, but also policing-free schools, and to eliminate policing culture, infrastructure, and practices in schools across Ottawa. I'm May. I use they, them pronouns, and I became a member of the CELU in the spring of 2021. And ever since, I've been working not only with other members of CELU, but also with students, parents, and people within educational settings also fighting for abolition and racial justice. When I think about how I really entered more collective efforts of trying to find pathways towards social justice, that really started with me having a best friend who is Palestinian and spending a lot of time with her and her sister at the beginning of the pandemic and really becoming far more aware of not only the implications of having police forces in places like North America, but how that is connected to the struggles of oppressed peoples all over the world, including the struggle for liberation in occupied Palestine. When I was learning about those things in a more global context, I was realizing that I don't have to go out of my way to join those struggles for liberation. I can do that within my own neighborhood. So that's where I started joining other voices, advocating to the Ottawa Police Service Board to try and reduce the budget for 2021. And that led me to looking just around me and finding a CELU. My first involvement with grassroots organizing was with ASILU. It was myself and my two comrades, Grace and Lello, who co-founded, like I said, in 2020 during this movement for Black Lives that was going on throughout the year. Based on discussions amongst ourselves and what we had observed when we were all at the same high school in Ottawa, we knew this was a prime moment to address the very, very large issue of policing in schools. The three of us went to Maryville High School. We had a school resource officer or what's commonly referred to as an SRO. And we, whether it was like observations of how the SRO was interacting with the racialized students, it was primarily our racialized peers who were younger boys. And also just like how the administration was weaponizing policing in schools, threatening to call the SRO on these young boys. 
And also Grace and Lalo being Black people, they also had different feelings than I as like someone who's non-Black about the presence of an officer in the school. And so that all brought us together in deciding that it would be a good idea and a good opportunity to get into organizing, especially being so inspired by all the other organizing that was going on around us. What does the SRO program say itself about its role in schools? And what's your sense of what it actually does there? The SRO program was created in the early 2000s when there was new legislation that came out around safe schools. It wasn't implemented with any consideration for racialized students, specifically Black and Indigenous students. It wasn't created with things in mind for students with disabilities or disabled students either. And it was not really until the community started pushing back over, you know, two decades that there was a microscope taken to these programs to see what they were actually doing. Policing in schools is a practice that has been going on, you know, even before the 2000s across Canada and the U.S. And the presence of police in schools, I mean, it's in the name, it's like to police the behavior and the culture of children and of youth in schools, especially those who are racialized, who are disabled, who are queer and trans. They are the ones that are being the most impacted by this. It's also a mode of surveillance, and this doesn't mean that it has to use like surveillance technologies, but surveillance can be through teachers patrolling the hall and coordinating with the school resource officer or like administrators looking at cameras and hall monitors and things like that. And it's all to ensure that white supremacy and a white supremacist environment is being upheld in schools, that there's this culture of white supremacy that is very punitive, it is very carceral, and students aren't able to be free, be creative, exercise thought, exercise like movement even. So it really is a form of racial control, which is what we've seen many scholars and organizers saying for decades. We've seen their work in Ontario and beyond, and this is exactly what the youth are saying as well. Another thing that comes to mind when I think about even just the name school resource officer, or sometimes it's said student resource officer, they really do try to push the idea that these officers are a resource. You know, they are to be there for holistic support to the school, which means support and a resource for admin teachers and students. And it's meant to be, as they say, a collaborative community-based approach to policing as well as to safety. The only thing that I see as being accurate in that description is that they are a resource for administrators and for teachers in the sense that the responsibility of managing conflict and the responsibility of avoiding and preventing issues of safety in the school becomes offloaded from admin and teachers and kind of outsourced to these officers. And what happens in that is that we will not have a preventative approach Instead, we will only have a reactive one. And it's something that we've also seen since the cessation of the SRO program, that many teachers and administrators, specifically white ones, are kind of lashing out that they do not have this resource anymore for themselves. And it means that they have to shoulder this responsibility once again, but their board has not changed anything within its structures in order to help them be able to shoulder that responsibility meaning whenever they can, they escalate things in order to be able to bring that officer in, be able to rely on fear 
be able to rely on punitive measures in order to, quote unquote, straighten out whoever is giving them problems that week. When in reality, what's needed in these schools, in all schools and in all spaces with youth is one, the chance to make mistakes and two, supports to prevent those mistakes from becoming really traumatizing to the youth and everyone around them and the supports to be able to navigate conflict in a way that will actually rectify it and prevent it from escalating or happening again in the future, which is obviously something that we don't see with policing. The school to prison pipeline is something that we haven't like explicitly named. Black and Indigenous youth are way overrepresented in Ontario detention facilities. And this is because of policing and school programs, whether they be formal, like the school resource officer program that has since been terminated in Ottawa, but it exists in a lot of other cities across the country, or it's like informal policing, which is what May has spoken a bit about. And then I also wanted to touch on preventative measures. And that's something that OPS and administration will often motion towards when they talk about policing in schools, but it's very different and is actually like a preemptive kind of approach. It's preemptive policing. It's assuming that the children and youth in these schools are criminals and they are going to commit some sort of crime and they are worthy of like punishment before anything even happens. And that's why the school resource officer exists. So the racial justice uprising of 2020 was going strong. You decided you wanted to get the SRO program out of Ottawa schools. What kinds of things did the Asilu Collective do to make that happen? We started off with a petition. We were also hosting teach-ins. We spoke with a lot of students at schools to their different like racial justice clubs. And then once the school year started in September of 2020, we started going to school board meetings and we started off with OCDSB, the Ottawa Carleton District School Board. They have 65% of all Ottawa students, I believe. So we thought it made the most sense strategically. So we showed up to a lot of their meetings. We got people to send in emails and phone trustees about ending the school resource officer program. Something that was really important to us is saying that we don't need any more research and we don't need any more studies being done about why the school resource officer program is bad. Like this has been done time and time again, even in Ontario. We were able to work with some trustees as well, which was really helpful, who were able to put forward motions. I believe it was in the fall that they passed the motion and then they decided to do the review of the school resource officer program. They said the program would continue during the review. And that's, I remember, where a lot of our capacity grew. May joined the collective. Asilu launched their own anonymous reporting of students' experiences with student resource officers. We knew we didn't need more studies. We knew that the program just needed to be abolished. But we wanted to make sure that we were collecting our own data from the community in order to better hold Ottawa Carlton District School Board accountable in their own collection of data. It was late spring, early summer that that report from OCDSB came out, and it was not very far off from our own report in terms of the reported experiences of alumni as well as current students. After that, we had to endure what felt like months of debate. We had to hear all the trustees debate if those experiences were enough to change or end a program 
that had been found to have been perpetrating human rights abuses in schools. And then finally, after all of that, it was voted to be abolished. It was just an OCDSB where they had a vote like that. But when the Ottawa Police Services heard that their largest client for school resource officers had cut the program, they just decided to stop the program altogether. And that meant that all four school boards in the city no longer had access to a school resource officer program. Explain to listeners the distinction that you make between police-free schools and policing-free schools. Formal policing that comes from cops, policing actually like goes beyond that. And what we've seen at many different schools across Ottawa is that policing is also being perpetrated by administration and other school staff like teachers. This can be, you know, policing students' movements in the halls and things like that. But it also is about the suspensions and expulsions that students are experiencing and the other punitive measures like detention and things like that, that, again, disproportionately are experienced by racialized students. And of course, like the administration calling OPS on their students and OPS officers coming in despite the fact that the school resource officer program is ended. So there are those loopholes that the administration is aware of, and they are definitely weaponizing it against these children. We've worked with a bunch of different youth and their families in the past year around the policing that they've experienced. So just thinking about all these different tactics that the school administration is using to punish Black students and other racialized students is why we have that shift to policing and thinking about what it means to have like a culture of policing where that is consistently happening at schools in Ottawa, what it means for the culture to penetrate like all these different classrooms because teachers are weaponizing this and not just administrators. There are tons of legislative expectations of policing that are set within schools through things like the Education Act and safe schools legislation as well. Principals and administrators and teachers have legislated duties to uphold certain carceral standards. There are some circumstances, for instance, where a suspension is automatic and where expulsion has to be considered by the principal. So there's a lot that is embedded into schools very systemically through these kinds of legislative measures. There are some situations where admin are still, by provincial law, expected to bring cops into schools. What Asilu has seen is we have admin who will voluntarily exaggerate what has gone on in order to be able to use that tool in their tool belt that has been limited to just these specific examples. So policing students through surveilling them in hallways, following them into bathrooms and pounding on their stalls if they're taking too long, these assumptions that they are going to break a law, that they are going to break a rule, treating them as criminals, as if these principals are not educators, but instead are guards at a prison, and then setting the situation up to the best of their abilities as the principals to be able to call by law, to be able to call the police and be policing in their own behaviors themselves, and then be able to walk away from the situation as best they can and have an actual police officer take over once they have been able to, you know, escalate it. 
policing as well. We see in other things like dress codes, things like expecting certain behaviors and morals and ethics that are tied to things like Christian values, which is something that you actually read in the Education Act in certain places. And having these expectations of language and of behavior that are all, again, tied back to just policing and assimilating people into the, quote, Canadian norm, which is at the end of the day, really just a white supremacist norm that has led to, I guess, a moral justification for domination. Another thing that we see in terms of policing is streaming, academic streaming. This also greatly and disproportionately impacts Indigenous, Black, and other racialized students, and it's reliant on often racist assumptions. So in those senses, we have legislative expectations to police students. We have curriculum-based expectations to police students, along with, you know, all of the policing that administrators do on top of that in the halls and in the bathrooms and in the classrooms. It just leaves very little room for these students to be children and to be youth and to explore and to be curious and to trust that school is a place that they could do that. I also wanted to point to parents who are also experiencing policing in schools. Parents that we have worked with have spoken to the fact that there have been times where they'll enter a school to ask the principal or other administrators or teacher why, you know, their child was suspended or sent home or why they experienced the punishment that they did. And they have questions. And these parents have been threatened with the police by school administrators. It's the children and their families who are being criminalized. And it's always these Black families, these Indigenous families, these migrant families who are experiencing this. And what have the activities of the Asilu Collective been over the last year in the context of all of these things? A main activity that we've been doing in response to a lot of the really distressing stories of what we call white lash, being that with the lack of the resource officer program, white administrators and teachers go by their own means and escalate their own policing in order to maintain a relatively similar status quo in their schools. And what we have done is connect with various different educators, as well as community members that either work within or adjacent to schools and students in order to support each other because teachers who do not support policing in schools who want to change the status quo within their schools are also faced with really scary surveillance and threats to their livelihoods, as well as policing from usually other white teachers or administrators. So that mutual support for ASILU, it's to understand what schools have been like since the SRO program. And for these other folks to have our support in, say, advocacy, say, research and outreach to other community groups creates a really strong network. Another thing that we've been doing is creating other modes of reporting that the schools don't accommodate. So we had an anonymous reporting tool so that students and parents and perhaps even educators as well could let Asilu know what was going on without revealing their identity. Working with parents and youth and like creating 
that network of community care is of utmost importance for us. Something else that we've been doing is hosting book club for youth. We invite youth to take part in engaging with the different materials with us. And that can be like text, podcasts, YouTube videos, documentaries. And this is all around abolition and the abolition of like policing, the abolition of like capitalism and imperialism. Political education is really important to us. Another thing that I feel Asilu has pivoted from recently, but was offering in the 2021-2022 school year was more direct advocacy with like families and youth. So, you know, helping a family navigate, say, a suspension appeal to the school board or helping them navigate a meeting with an administrator or navigate an issue with a teacher, things like that, as well as some other greater community things that they ask for our support on. So community crowdfunding. But in the past little while, we have pivoted. Like Haley said, we're hoping to create more networks and focus more on building resiliency throughout the community and connect people with other people instead of always putting ourselves up against these school boards. A lot of the stuff that is happening within schools is very entrenched and having a bigger network to be able to confront those really big obstacles and help parents connect with each other and speak with other people in their community is really powerful to be able to, you know, not feel so alone in these struggles. That pivot is really about recognizing that these networks of community care, they must be done to create a sustainable movement for ourselves and the folks that we support. And it's so, so important that we do all of this outside of the state. Of course, we want to do work of dismantling, and that is super important too, and the removal of the SRO program. That was a huge win and a huge success for us. But also like remembering that, you know, cops are still showing up in schools and policing is still happening in schools. And so we have to arm youth and their parents with like knowledge and skills on like how to protect each other, because at the end of the day, we keep each other safe. And we're all we have in this white supremacist settler colonial hellscape that we're all living in, unfortunately. And we need to remember to protect each other and prioritize each other. And this all has to be done outside of the state. And that even includes, for example, like engaging too much with the school boards. It was very difficult for us to constantly be attending meetings with school board trustees who were very condescending. They were racist. They were ableist. They were completely dismissing the experiences of so many racialized and other marginalized youth and their families. And so that is hard to go up against all the time. And so turning away from that and supporting youth and their families in other ways is something we want to continue to prioritize. Wins don't happen by motion or by vote or by any kind of action that these trustees and other institutional powers take. They happen because of the strength and the cohesion of the community and its power. So tapping back into that and, you know, placing the value into the community that is deserved, that's something that we have to focus on and build ourselves. You have been listening to my interview with Haley, Yasmin Dash, and May Mason of the Asilu Collective. To learn more about the group, search for Asilu Collective on Twitter or Instagram.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.